Freedom and Virtue Institute presents Readings in the Freedom and Virtue Tradition, hosted by Director of Research Kevin Schmiesing. Adam Smith, 1723 to 1790, was a Scottish moral philosopher and is widely considered to be the founder of the modern discipline of economics. He attended the University of Glasgow, where he was influenced by the moral philosopher Francis Hutcheson. After study at Oxford University, Smith returned to Glasgow, where he contributed to making the university a center for what became known as the Scottish Enlightenment. His first major publication was A Theory of Moral Sentiments, 1759, followed by the book for which he is best known, The Wealth of Nations, 1776. Its full title, An Inquiry into the Nature and Causes of the Wealth of Nations, reflects its overarching aim, to analyze and explain how the material welfare of societies had increased. In this endeavor, Smith presented for the first time, or at least articulated in the clearest and most memorable fashion, some of the central ideas of free market economics, including the concept of the invisible hand, the tendency for the pursuit of self-interest to bring about the more general welfare of society, and the division of labor, the increased productivity enabled by the specialization of workers. In this reading, I'll be excerpting from Smith's Treatment of the Division of Labor, which appears for the most part at the beginning of Wealth of Nations in Chapter 1 of Book 1. I also include a bit of Chapter 2, which extends the discussion of the division of labor and also captures Smith's famous description of the propensity of human beings to meet their needs through exchange with each other. An Inquiry into the Nature and Causes of the Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith, as presented at the Project Gutenberg website. Book 1 of the Causes of Improvement in the Productive Powers of Labor and of the Order According to Which Its Produce is Naturally Distributed Among the Different Ranks of the People. Chapter 1 of the Division of Labor. The greatest improvements in the productive powers of labor, and the greater part of the skill, dexterity, and judgment with which it is anywhere directed or applied, seem to have been the effects of the division of labor. The effects of the division of labor in the general business of society will be more easily understood by considering in what manner it operates in some particular manufactures. It is commonly supposed to be carried furthest in some very trifling ones, not perhaps that it really is carried further in them than in others of more importance, but in those trifling manufactures which are destined to supply the small ones of but a small number of people, the whole number of workmen must necessarily be small, and those employed in every different branch of the work can often be collected into the same workhouse and placed at once under the view of the spectator. In those great manufactures, on the contrary, which are destined to supply the great wants of the great body of the people, every different branch of the work employs so great a number of workmen that it is impossible to collect them all into the same workhouse. We can seldom see more at one time than those employed in one single branch. Though in such manufactures, therefore, the work may really be divided into a much greater number of parts than in those of a more trifling nature, the division is not near so obvious and has accordingly been much less observed. To take an example, therefore, from a very trifling manufacture, but one in which the division of labor has been very often taken notice of, the trade of a pin-maker, a workman not educated to this business, 
which the division of labor has rendered a distinct trade, nor acquainted with the use of the machinery employed in it, to the invention of which the same division of labor has probably given occasion, could scarce perhaps with his utmost industry make one pin in a day, and certainly could not make twenty. But in the way in which this business is now carried on, not only the whole work is a peculiar trade, but it is divided into a number of branches, of which the greater part are likewise peculiar trades. One man draws out the wire, another straights it, a third cuts it, a fourth points it, a fifth grinds it at the top for receiving the head. To make the head requires two or three distinct operations. To put it on is a peculiar business. To whiten the pins is another. It is even a trade by itself to put them into the paper. And the important business of making a pin is, in this manner, divided into about eighteen distinct operations, which in some manufactories are all performed by distinct hands, though in others the same man will sometimes perform two or three of them. I have seen a small manufactory of this kind where ten men only were employed, and where some of them consequently performed two or three distinct operations. But though they were very poor, and therefore but indifferently accommodated with the necessary machinery, they could, when they exerted themselves, make among them about twelve pounds of pins in a day. There are in a pound upwards of four thousand pins of a middling size. Those ten persons, therefore, could make among them upwards of forty-eight thousand pins in a day. Each person, therefore, making a tenth part of 48,000 pins, might be considered as making 4,800 pins in a day. But if they had all wrought separately and independently, and without any of them having been educated to this peculiar business, they certainly could not each of them had made 20, perhaps not one pin in a day. That is, certainly not the 240th, perhaps not the 4,800th part, of what they are at present capable of performing, in consequence of a proper division and combination of their different operations. In every other art and manufacture, the effects of the division of labor are similar to what they are in this very trifling one, though in many of them the labor can neither be so much subdivided nor reduced to so great a simplicity of operation. The division of labor, however, so far as it can be introduced, occasions in every art a proportionable increase of the productive powers of labor. The separation of different trades and employments from one another seems to have taken place in consequence of this advantage. This separation, too, is generally carried furthest in those countries which enjoy the highest degree of industry and improvement. What is the work of one man in a rude state of society being generally that of several in an improved one? In every improved society, the farmer is generally nothing but a farmer, the manufacturer nothing but a manufacturer. The labor, too, which is necessary to produce any one complete manufacture, is almost always divided among a great number of hands. How many different trades are employed in each branch of the linen and woolen manufactures, from the growers of the flax and the wool, to the bleachers and smoothers of the linen, or to the dyers and dressers of the cloth? The nature of agriculture indeed does not admit of so many subdivisions of labor, nor of so complete a separation of one business from another as manufacturers. It is impossible to separate so entirely the business of the grazier from that of the corn farmer, as the trade of the carpenter is commonly separated from that of the smith. The spinner is almost always a distinct person from the weaver, but the plowman, the harrower, the sower of the seed, and the reaper of the corn are often the same. The occasions for those different sorts of labor returning with the different seasons of the year, it is impossible that one man should be constantly employed in any one of them. This impossibility of making so complete and entire a separation of all the different branches of labor employed in agriculture 
is perhaps the reason why the improvement of the productive powers of labor in this art does not always keep pace with their improvement in manufactures. The most opulent nations, indeed, generally excel all their neighbors in agriculture as well as in manufactures, but they are commonly more distinguished by their superiority in the latter than in the former. Their lands are in general better cultivated, and having more labor and expense bestowed upon them produce more in proportion to the extent and natural fertility of the ground. But this superiority of produce is seldom much more than in proportion to the superiority of labor and expense. In agriculture, the labor of the rich country is not always much more productive than that of the poor, or at least it is never so much more productive as it commonly is in manufacturers. The corn of the rich country, therefore, will not always, in the same degree of goodness, come cheaper to market than that of the poor. This great increase in the quantity of work, which in consequence of the division of labor the same number of people are capable of performing, is owing to three different circumstances. First, to the increase of dexterity in every particular workman. Secondly, to the saving of the time which is commonly lost in passing from one species of work to another. And lastly, to the invention of a great number of machines which facilitate and abridge labor and enable one man to do the work of many. It is the great multiplication of the productions of all the different arts in consequence of the division of labor which occasions in a well-governed society that universal opulence which extends itself to the lowest ranks of the people. Every workman has a great quantity of his own work to dispose of beyond what he himself has occasion for, and every other workman being exactly in the same situation, he is enabled to exchange a great quantity of his own goods for a great quantity, or, what comes to the same thing, for the price of a great quantity of theirs. He supplies them abundantly with what they have occasion for, and they accommodate him as amply with what he has occasion for, and a general plenty diffuses itself through all the different ranks of the society. Chapter 2 of the Principle Which Gives Occasion to the Division of Labor the division of labor from which so many advantages are derived is not originally the effect of any human wisdom which foresees and intends that general opulence to which it gives occasion. It is the necessary, though very slow and gradual, consequence of a certain propensity in human nature, which has in view no such extensive utility, the propensity to truck, barter, and exchange one thing for another. Whether this propensity be one of those original principles in human nature, of which no further account can be given, or whether, as seems more probable, it be the necessary consequence of the faculties of reason and speech, it belongs not to our present subject to inquire. It is common to all men, and to be found in no other race of animals, which seem to know neither this nor any other species of contracts. In almost every other race of animals, each individual, when it is grown up to maturity, is entirely independent, and in its natural state has occasion for the assistance of no other living creature. But man has almost constant occasion for the help of his brethren, and it is in vain for him to expect it from their benevolence only. He will be more likely to prevail if he can interest their self-love in his favor, and show them that it is for their own advantage to do for him what he requires of them. Whoever offers to another a bargain of any kind proposes to do this. Give me that which I want, and you shall have this which you want, is the meaning of every such offer, and it is in this manner that we obtain from one another the far greater part of those good offices which we stand in need of. It is not from the benevolence of the butcher, the brewer, or the baker that we expect our dinner, but from their regard to their own interest. We address ourselves not to their humanity, but to their self-love, and never talk to them of our own necessities, 
but of their advantages. Nobody but a beggar chooses to depend chiefly upon the benevolence of his fellow citizens. Even a beggar does not depend upon it entirely. The charity of well-disposed people indeed supplies him with the whole fund of his subsistence. But though this principle ultimately provides him with all the necessaries of life which he has occasion for, it neither does nor can provide him with them as he has occasion for them. The greater part of his occasional ones are supplied in the same manner as those of other people, by treaty, by barter, and by purchase. With the money which one man gives him, he purchases food. The old clothes which another bestows upon him, he exchanges for other clothes which suit him better, or for lodging, or for food, or for money, with which he can buy either food, clothes, or lodging, as he has occasion. As it is by treaty, by barter, and by purchase that we obtain from one another the greater part of those mutual good offices which we stand in need of, so it is this same trucking disposition which originally gives occasion to the division of labor. Thank you for listening to this production of the Freedom and Virtue Institute. To offer feedback or suggestions for future episodes, please contact Kevin Schmeising by email, kevin at fbinstitute.org.